there. My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. According to the literature, the skelly, Corrigonus laboratus, is not only the rarest freshwater fish in Britain, but not unsurprisingly, also the least likely to expect ever to see on rotten line. So rare, in fact, that the white fishes, of which a skelly is one, are now officially protected under the Wildlife and Countryside Act. What this means is that you cannot deliberately target the species. What it does not mean, however, is that you won't unavoidably catch one while fishing for other things, as Anthony James and I did in September 2011, while fishing for trout in England's highest altitude lake to contain fish, Red Tarn, at the base of Helvellyn. Prior to the Wildlife and Countryside Act, the species could legitimately be caught, albeit rarely, and in all but a few exceptional cases, more of which later, usually without any deliberate intent. A number of those exceptions were centred around one fairly short-lived boat of interest by myself and Bob Fitchie, who is sat here with me now. If you recall, we once set ourselves the seemingly impossible task of catching at least one example of all the UK's different adipose finned fish species in a single season, which we saw as being the ultimate salmonic grand slam. I do indeed, yeah. As you say, it was uh, perhaps an ultimate aim, and one that's probably not been achieved by many... Uh many anglers at all perhaps just a handful i've got a recollection that uh, fred buller was one of those but I'm, I'm not sure how many people have achieved it i've recently had word from fred buller to say that he doesn't think he is the first person to catch all the adipose species and certainly not in the same season that rumor apparently started with dick walker who suggested to fred that he might have caught them all and sort of grew into urban myth from that now initially, we looked at a number of different potential variations on the theme, such as stillwater species only, non-migratory species only, and indigenous species only. I think we might even have considered only targeting those species with self-sustaining populations. But due to blurring as to the accurate status of some species, in particular whether or not we should include the rainbow trout, we finally decided to go for broke and target the whole lot. That being salmon, sea trout, brown trout, rainbow trout, brook trout, grayling, char and skelly. Hybrids such as tiger and cheetah trout were excluded on the basis of being hatchery and manipulated products. You could, I suppose, also argue the same as being true for the rainbow trout, though there are a handful of self-sustaining populations in various isolated locations around the UK. Yeah, I, I uh, remember with great fondness um, a brook bond picture cards that you used to get in tea. Do you remember... The old green packets, they had orange stamps on the side. And my grandma used to collect them for me. And uh, when I went up there in school holidays, there was, there was a red pile of them to, uh, to search through. And the favourite one was obviously the freshwater fishing, uh, in which there's uh, a couple of pages of them. And, and the ones that we targeted were uh, well and truly in here. They got some interesting comments on them, actually. But I've spent many a happy hour sort of looking through these as a, as a young boy and thinking, crikey, Wells catfish, that looks a real challenge. But all the fish that we targeted, and I think we were comfortable in using them, were in this, uh, this Brook Bond book. There was also some debate as to whether we should include both brown trout and sea trout, as these are little more than migratory and non-migratory versions of the same fish. But as the British record fish list includes both, it was decided to follow their lead and optimistically target the full eight species previously mentioned. Yeah, I had a bit of difficulty about the brown trout and sea trout. Um, simplistic lad only managed to get uh, all-level biology. 
But um, to me, the different fish, and if we look at the brook bond thing, it's a bit contrary, really, because under sea trout, it says uh, the Latin name Salmo trutter, which again, it accords to the brown trout. But it says, this is not a distinct species, but merely a form of the brown trout that, like the salmon, goes down to the sea and becomes large and silvery. So I'm still comfortable of taking them as different fish. In this particular case, it's academic anyway, because you caught both. But others in the future might want to refine the list, both for ease as well as for accuracy. <laughs> it's, it's just adding to the challenge a bit more, isn't it? But I think we were comfortable that what we agreed was, uh, was a fair target. Legal and moral constraints to one side for the moment, if we were setting ourselves the same objective now in 2011, but based on the level of knowledge we had back at that time, how realistic a target do you think a repeat of this particular Grand Slam might ultimately be? I reckon it's quite a, a reasonable, uh, achievable target to do in any fishing season. But there are a few difficulties that come to my mind. I mean, the first one is the time constraint, having time to travel round and about and, and spend time on the rivers to target your species, which in itself has a second complication nowadays uh, with costs and so on is the expense that you've got to, uh, to do. But it's one of these um, issues where there's absolutely no guarantees whatsoever. Uh, you can never guarantee a specific quarry, even though you might be fishing for them in the right place at the right time. And perhaps that's something we might come on to a bit more later on. That's right. In my case, it turned out to be the sea trout. And still, I haven't caught one. So let's now explore the potential, problems and limitations of each fish in turn. Well, little adage, if they ain't in the river, you're not going to catch them. If you're there at the right time and the conditions are right, you're in with a better chance. But sometimes you go down, you see the river, you think, bob on, absolutely bob on, colour's lovely, height's perfect. You've had reports that fish are moving through and you still don't catch. Then you can go out on a day and you think, what on earth am I doing here? Wasting my time. And it happens. There's a big element of luck in it. Um, and being in the right place, sometimes... You might be lucky enough to get uh, invitations from friends. They might put you in a, a better position to uh, achieve your, your aim and so on. And, uh, you know, that's another sort of source of possibilities to succeed. My problem at the last attempt was in the Baltic, where sea trout well into double figures were coming out. Yet all I could catch was salmon. Hard luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to cry for that one. Gracious me. One point I would like to make regarding degree of difficulty before we get into the individual species is that today we have the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which we didn't have back then, which protects the whitefish species from any sort of deliberate human contact. But, if you happen to pick one up accidentally, then so long as it goes back immediately, how unlucky can you get? Yeah, that's quite a dilemma, isn't it, really? Perhaps we need to seek a, a legal opinion on that from a, a mutual colleague of ours that might well sort of intertwine in these conversations. We can develop that side of things more as we go along. Time now, I think, to look at what you achieved on a species-by-species species basis, starting with the salmon. If you had all the other species already in the bag and was being held back here, it's probably fair to say that with this particular fish, you could, if you had the money, buy your way to success. Indeed, going back to our aforementioned uh, colleague, who I'm sure he won't mind if I named him as James Pinder. He was the person responsible for me taking up an interest in fly fishing and, and so on and so forth when he, he worked 
uh, for county as a, a student before he went into his uh, career in law. But James fishes extensively now, and uh, only this season he, he told me um, he'd got an invitation to fish up on the junction pool, probably one of the most known pools, uh, certainly in England, in the United Kingdom, sorry, not in England, possibly even the world. But this was an instance where you just cannot guarantee. You'd expect, but you can't guarantee. I'll not tell you that James blanked, that might not be too fair, but... He did say that if you wanted to guarantee a fish, as much as you possibly could guarantee a fish, then the junction pool's possibly one of the places. To do that, you'd need to be fishing at the back end, you'd need to be fishing October, November, and that comes with quite a hefty tag. And it is for ten rods, you can sublet it out, but uh, all I'm saying is that you can go to the best place in the world and still not guarantee a salmon at all. The first fish I caught... I remember it particularly for all sorts of reasons, but one of them was uh, the conditions were awful. We were walking across the tops in the, the Hodder Valley. The rain was coming across us horizontally, stinging into our faces. I thought, what on earth are you doing on a Sunday morning when you should be somewhere a lot warmer? Uh, and, and it just happened. Uh, you know, you, you go out with, with sort of no prospects in your head, and, and, and all of a sudden, bingo, you're on and... Uh, your heart's racing like Madden, you're into a fish. Not being a freshwater angler specifically, the best I could manage was a day spent with you as a guest knocking out loads of par on the fly from the upper ribble. Not exactly in the best spirit of things, but genetically speaking, still an undisputed source of salmon DNA. Well, indeed, it's, it's one of those that you could debate over a bottle, couldn't you, really? If it's, if it's got the right genes, does, this, does size matter? And for the average angler wanting to crack at the Salmonic Grand Slam, what would be your advice as to the best, quickest, and so far as is possible, cheapest approach to ticking the salmon from his or her list? I would have thought, here, in our region first, that you're talking sort of um, towards the back end of the season, which is September, October, on a height of water. And, I mean, my preference would be to spin with um, MEPS-type spinners if it's not too high or getting up to decent jointed rapalas if it's, if, it, if it's higher than that. But again, you know, you can fish in what you think is perfect conditions, never see a fish all day, and then you can just go down and you're latched into one. But if you are fortunate enough to be able to go further afield, on the, you know, like the border-esque or somewhere like that, where James has taken me a couple of times, and even the big rivers in, in Scotland then they will have seasons and I suppose the ultimate is a springer off the tear, the tweed and that sort of thing, uh, which can be sort of February, March. You get some runs in, in the uh, late uh, spring, early summer and you'll get some very late runs, like we've said on the junction pool, up to as far as November. But if money's your, uh, you know, you're, you're okay with that, then you can throw at it what you want. And just to complete the story... Where and when did you get the fish that crossed the species off your Grand Slam list? I'm not quite sure. I can, I've been really racking my mind about this and I don't think that I can recall the specific fish. I've not, <laughs> I've not caught a whole, uh, whole lot of salmon in the time I've been trying, but there's a couple of memorable ones I can just touch on if you like. One's, one's quite a nice little story and the other one I've touched on, which was the first. You always remember the first instance, don't you, really? first one was on the River Hodder. I used to have a postcard on my uh, wall at work and it was of a salmon and I'd written underneath it 
1982-83 objective. James Pinder, of course, uh, defaced it by putting on it, you'll be lucky. And, and I actually achieved it in 86-87. Uh, it was at the 15th of September, this Sunday morning, horrible weather, didn't like the prospects, fishing in a good spot, all of a sudden, bang, and it was it was just, you know, everything let loose. Shouting at the top of my voice for my uh, fishing colleague so that he could come and help me. And it was about £7, typical grills, lovely colour, nice condition. And that was the first fish I'd got. But the perhaps the most memorable fish I've ever had, and I'm, I think I can say I'll never repeat this one, was again a day for different reasons. That uh, they did, you know the river was fairly lowish, and uh, and so on. It was uh, again sort of September time, perhaps even into October. This one, and it was at Paythorn on the River Ribble uh, near Paythorn Bridge, which is uh, quite well known locally. I think they used to call it Salmon Sunday. Uh, sometime in, in November a lot of people used to gather there to actually watch the run of salmon going through but on this day I, I went down and uh, just normal sort of fishing to the far bank fishing down with a an abu drop and this particular one was I've, I've still kept it for uh, sentimental reasons and uh, it, it was just a, a normal day just fishing across fishing across nothing nothing what's new here and all of a sudden as happens with salmon, everything stops and goes rock solid. And uh, I thought, hmm, is it the bank, is it what, I don't know. And out the side of my eye, just a little bit further upstream, this Polaris submarine sort of came out. And I better not lapse into Anglo-Saxon here. I thought, gee me, that's rather a large fish. And then all of a sudden, I was wheeled round and this fish was on the end of, uh, of my line anyway it took me an hour plus to land this fish there were a number of people stopped on the bridge at Paythor and a couple of members came down and, and so on and so forth and one of the members was there with the net ready he actually stopped the fish going out the pool one stage but it started to come in a little bit and I, I really hadn't grasped the size of it at all I'd seen it a good few times but as I was backing up the uh, the bank, he got it in the guy net and turned to me and said, Bob, I don't know how to tell you this, it's foul hooked. And again, the Anglo-Saxon came to mind. <laughs> One or two words, I threw my cap on the floor, I remember that. And he said, what are you going to do with it? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, are you going to take it? And I said, it doesn't come into the question, it's foul hooked, it's not been fairly caught, it's got to go back. So we looked at it, and it was huge. We thought it was about £35, a cockfish, and it was duly returned, revived in the water, and, and off it went. And I was shaking like a leaf, obviously. But I did get a bit of fame from that. It appeared I got a little bit of a mention in Trout and Salmon, and it went round the clubs. It would have been a, a ball and game fishing club record and one thing and another. It was actually criticised for putting it back after having it on so far, saying what would its survival rate have been like, but it wasn't fair and square and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have been right at all. So that's the biggest one and uh, the one that I'll never, ever forget, but I'd like to have said that's the one that got me the Grand Slam, but I think that might be stretching it a bit too far, I think, really. And on that note, let's now move to my Achilles heel, the sea trout. Understandably, perhaps, I'm of the opinion that we shouldn't have included it and just stuck with the brown trout. 
I'm inclined to actually stick by my, yes, we do include it. I mean, you know, in my little eyes, not with any scientific background, it's still a different fish by appearance, but I, I don't know how they can change as they, they move about. But um, sea trout can be really, really fickle. And again, it's right time, right place. But with them, you've, you've got a you, you've got fair choice. You know, you can you can have a crack at them with a fly. You can worm fish for them. I don't particularly like worm fishing. I don't do it at all. I don't think it's good for the fish if you're going to release them anyway. And you can you can fish fly during the day, or you can spin for them on a height of water. It's really got quite a lot going for it. I think one of the attractions for um, sea trout fishing is actually when you do go out at night because if there are fish there and they're moving and they're, they're splashing about it starts to get your heckles going a bit then you, you think you know what's that noise over there I remember being driven off from a, a piece of water at Grindleton as on my own it, it wasn't that late it was pretty dark but this horrendous screaming coming from across the uh, the river it sounded like a child actually really quite chilling enough to send me packing anyway and uh, I spoke to Brian Rafferty the morning after and he said oh were you such an I said yeah yeah that's where I was yeah he said it's it's a vixen that's calling and once you know what it is it's like when you hear a hedgehog this snuffling and thinking about or a cow coughing it just sounds like an old bloke with a you know, in need of an Uncle Joe's or something, I don't know. And that's part of it, it's what you don't know that frightens you in a sense, but it heightens it for you, and, and when you're fortunate enough to latch into a sea trout on fly at night, it's like somebody switches a light on for you anyway, your senses come really into their own and, and so on, and you see the flash of silver as it turns over and it's about the net, and you think, oh, keep on, keep on, just let me get it over this lip. And you do get it, and you, you look at it and think, what a beautiful fish this is, so particularly um, a good fish to catch, I feel. What then are the more practical difficulties of fly fishing after dark? I think one of the things you've got to be aware of is your surroundings and it's one of those where should you really go on your own, should you have a a partner with you just in case. The last time I went uh, this season I made a right dogs of it. Um, I was catching the bank, I was flicking about. I wasn't happy at all, I couldn't settle. I hadn't heard any fish splashing and the motivation went for me but uh, I think a lot of it is preparation uh, knowing where you are and being safe if you're going to be wading in water you need to be safe you need to know the riverbed if you don't have to wade don't do that sort of thing really but it's like when Falkeser in his portrait of a happy man he used to do a recce of the river beforehand and he was fortunate to fish an absolutely stunning river and there were shoals of sea trout there and he knew they were going to be there that night. So uh, there's quite a good uh, set of footage on that film about catching sea trout at night. What then would your recommendation be here for anyone needing a quick result to free up time for other, less predictable species of this Salmonid Grand Slam? I don't know that a quick result is one that's perhaps right for sea trout. You can spend a long time fishing for them without any results at all. And then, again, going back to James, when he used to fish the lower ribble as a, as a young lad, he had three sea trout for over £20 one night. But again, a lot of it is being there at the right time and, and an element to look, really. And looking back, as with the salmon, can you remember the actual fish that allowed you to cross it off that particular season's list? 
Well, again, it's difficult to pin down a specific fish to a specific year. I've, I've caught not a lot of sea trout, but quite a few across the years. And a couple of those very early fish are quite strong memories. Again, at night, on fly, both on the river hod are different pools. One was in the uh, a pool, typical sea trout pool, on a bend, really deep, fast flowing, massive boulder, which was our marker for the river height and so on. And just casting across that into the run, letting it swing round. And I thought, well, I've hooked that tree on the other side here. Gave it a good pull and it nearly pulled me <laughs> pulled me back in and that was when we thought well, here we are we're on with the fish and uh, there was somebody else there that night which was particularly good and I remember them netting the fish for me and saying what a fantastic fish it was it was bright as a button not a tinge of colour in it at all so that was quite a good one and the other one just further upstream from that uh, I was on my own and that was when I remember again a dead stop in the middle think what's that and then it moves and then you're off and you're thinking, oh, please be a sea trout, don't be a chub. You seem to be able to see more. I don't know what, what it is that enhances your senses uh, in the dark, but that, that was another quite memorable fish, probably because it was one of the earliest ones I'd caught and I'd, I'd done it on my own, I'd tied my own fly, I'd put myself in the right place and uh, lucky enough to contact. Moving on now to the non-migratory version, despite it not being too widely stocked in today's ticket still waters anymore, Brown trout should not prove too much of a problem to catch by one means or another. No, I, I think that um, brown trout are prevalent in, in some um, potentate fisheries. Again, you can't target them specifically, but uh, if they're there, they're, uh, you're in with a chance of catching them. There are some really quite uh, famous ones that specialise in uh, individual species, as you know, and uh, that must up your odds. I think the problem with potentate fisheries is that brown trout grow more slowly and therefore cost more to stock in. And after you've put them in, they can also tend to sulk and become more troublesome to catch than rainbows, which detracts further from them in pure investment terms. Some fisheries, though, make a speciality out of growing on and stocking very big browns, for which they charge a premium. Diva Springs in Hampshire is a classic example, attracting enthusiasts from as far afield as mainland Europe. Otherwise, elsewhere, a few tend to go in here and there, more as a token gesture. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, Davis Springs, I've, I've only seen it on telly, and uh, to be really, really honest, I'm not sure that I'd like to target as a place I'd want to fish. To me, it's so artificial that it's not particularly worth the challenge. I, they're not going to jump out and uh, and so on. You've still got to, uh, to catch them, but um, you hear tales that they, just for publicity, stock with huge fish, invite big names just to go in and, and pull them out just to get a bit of publicity and say that the biggest fish has gone up from, I don't know, 20 to £30 pounds or whatever. There is an element of truth in what you're saying. Such big fish represent a huge investment on many fronts. So yes, fisheries do go all out to maximise the payback. But having fished the gin clear waters of places like Deaver and Abington, it also has to be said that while the big fish most certainly can be in there, getting them out can be quite another matter. But I'd far rather go out to our, uh, our beautiful Lake District to like the likes of Coniston and Windermere where this proper brown is there and they're quite a challenge because of the size of the water. You can go to the small becks and so on with, with fish small becks and catch small fish but beautiful fish, proper fish, worth a hundred diva springs fat things. <laughs> Sticking with the wild brownies, there are plenty of fly fishing opportunities on the rivers to catch them. 
Your own bowling club stretches on the Upper Ribble and Hodder being prime examples. Yeah, there is indeed. I used to be in bowling. As I um, diversified with my fishing interests, I actually um, came out from bowling, game fishers and so on. But on the um, the club I do, which fishes mainly on the, the lower ribble, you occasionally contact uh, some brown trout when you're fishing for, for sea trout. And I had a couple this year that were uh, beautiful fish, buttery yellow, full finned. Were they wild ones? Were they ones that had been washed down from other stockings? Tell me, convince me, I don't know, they, they were beautiful fish anyway. A regular enough event, I suppose, not to recall the individual fish in question here. Yeah, I think when you get onto that sort of one, you can say that you get them quite regularly. Of course, if you want the bait fishing option, that is also readily available too. Most of the big Cumbrian glacial lakes have good wild populations, though they can tend to be a bit on the small side. The thing is that when it comes time to fish for the post-glacial relic species such as the char and whitefish, chances are you're also going to catch smaller brownies as well anyway. In fact, though we actually targeted and caught skelly some years ago, we were in effect fishing for brown trout with the occasional skelly coming along as a bonus. So when you're doing this grand slam, brown trout are almost certain to come along. Yeah, you, you can't stop yourself sometimes, can you, really? And if you put yourself in the right place, then the odds of catching something are uh, are quite good. So I think if you were thinking about sort of um, saying get a bit of confidence, then the brownies and the rainbows and so on would be ones to start you off with a, with a good confidence start. And let's not forget that other predator of the large glacial lakes, particularly those with big char populations, the ferox trout, which I've been lucky enough to catch. With regard to definitive species identity, opinion is divided, and genetic investigations are still ongoing to try to determine the ultimate status of the ferox trout. So for the moment at least, and certainly at the time of our salmonic grand slam, it was still classed as a predatory fish-eating brown trout. There is, actually, an audio angling podcast by Ferox85 co-founder Ron Greer, devoted specifically to this subject. Mention is also made of the catching and distribution in two other interviews given by Eric Hope and by traditional char fishermen Jeff Carroll and Bill Gibson. So should we have included it, or was it the correct decision to see it as covered under the brown trout label? Well, it's one of these again, when's a trout become a ferox? Does size matter? It's one of those things, it's like, when does a grill turn into a salmon? Or in, perhaps in your parlance, uh, what's the difference between a codlin and a cod? It's sort of open to interpretation, and if you say, well, six, seven pounds of grills, ten pounds is a is a salmon, I don't know. I think I feel more comfortable thinking that a brown trout can grow into and change its eating habits, become cannibalistic, and therefore put on weight and become a ferox. I'm uncomfortable with that. Perhaps a little bit more comfortable than I am with a, a brown trout dropping back down the river, going out to sea, changing into a different fish and coming back up as a sea trout. It's, it's one of those, but it's, it's a good one for, for debate, isn't it? But I'm still comfortable that we didn't include it in this particular Grand Slam that I managed to get. Professor Andy Ferguson at Queen's University, Belfast, who's done a lot of DNA work on Irish brown and ferox trout populations, says he can tell the two apart genetically. Ferox 85 co-founder Ron Greer, on the other hand, reckons that all ferox are brown trout, though not all brown trout are potentially ferox. So as it stands in late 2011, the debate is still wide open. It is indeed, and I remember distinctly um, inviting him down to one of our annual events. 
quite remember that and uh, he was a huge character and I, I think I could echo those thoughts really quite, uh, you know, no problems. Next species up is the rainbow trout. If you can't manage to catch a rainbow then surely there isn't much hope for the rest of the project I would have thought. But catching a wild UK spawned rainbow trout, which do exist, is quite another matter. Crikey, what on earth would you call a wild rainbow? How, how would you prove that it's actually wild? Difficult, but not impossible, particularly if you catch one smaller than the typical stocking size of the fishery that was home to its parents. I picked up quite a few while working on an article for Stillwater Trout Fisherman with Ian Chapman, though I can't for the life of me remember where it was, as we did several one-off visits rapid-fire around that time. There was one corner of this particular lake, close to a small stream, where quite a few of them, all probably around half a pound in weight, were hauled up. Mm, I sometimes fish at Sladeburn, which is the uh, the head of the hodder, where it, it comes out, it spills out from stocks. And I reckon that there are some natural fish round about there. But uh, it's been a bit facetious, perhaps, the wildest rainbows I've ever uh, encountered are up at, uh, at Frank Casson's uh, fishery at Barnesfold where he stocks a number of triploids and uh, they're gaining in popularity uh, nowadays and uh, they've done off uh, as Martin James says uh, bend your stick and pull your string they, they, they really do go but as you say if, if you can't catch a rainbow then I, I wouldn't uh, sort of consider <laughs> going too far on the glam slam uh, route so we're quite happy with the rainbow trout then. It doesn't have to be naturally UK spawned. I think that's getting a bit too um, far down the line really. A rainbow is a rainbow in a sense. You can target it. I've, I've got a picture of me with my very, very first rainbow at Bank House Fly Fishery. It was quite funny actually because I went with uh, a friend called Kieran Mulholland. We didn't catch very many that day. It was, as I say, right in my infancy as far as fly fishing was concerned. And I caught this on the evening rise. It looked a huge fish to me. It re- I can remember the phone call I made to Elaine saying I'd caught this huge, huge rainbow. A standard stock at two pounds. But the funny thing about it was that when I opened it up, when I got it home to see what it had been feeding on, <laughs> in its stomach was a, a cigarette butt, which I thought, hmm, that'd be a challenge to, to imitate. But the really amusing thing was that when I'd landed it and... and plonked it on the head sort of thing and unhooked it it had been hooked previously and it was actually Kieran's fly he lost the fish earlier in the day and he knew the fly was his so I thought well that's fair odds that you know catching a fly that my mate had lost before so that's just a bit of fun that one but uh, that's a lovely lovely fishery there and let's not forget that there are other options with some fisheries specifically stocked with rainbows that allow bait fishing. Estuate in the Southern Lake District being a prime example. Well, we fish Estuate, haven't we? Um, I remember the first time uh, you took me up. I took Elliot with me as well. And you'd discovered this magic never, ever fail bait that was absolutely cast iron guaranteed to catch fish. I thought you'd be careful using that word guarantee when Joan was present. And uh, lo and behold, I never caught anything on it. I know you did, and I know Elliot caught a fish on a spinner. That was Berkeley Powerbait, which they eventually banned because it was so good. But to Eswick, I've been back a few times and I've fished it with bait, and I've caught some beautiful perch and pike on spinner and so on, but I've only caught rainbows, and he maintains proper wild brown trout. 
on Spinner there. But there is a place on the tops going over the moors. I can't remember where that is, but this is one of these places that texted a bit too far. You can fish 24 hours. It's floodlit. And at the end of each season, he opens it up to bait fishing, literally to clear out some stock. And there's no bag limit and, and so on and so forth. That's Pennine Fishery. Pennine Fishery, indeed. I was sort of uh, hoping you might just uh, recall that one. I've only ever fished it once. And I remember the fish were patrolling the bank. We were trying to cast out as far as we could. And most of the fish had been caught before. That not in particularly good condition. But a lot of them were right in the margins, just patrolling round, and they, they weren't interested. Let's now look at brook trout. These are actually a char species imported from America, which in my experience represent quite a formidable challenge. Even back then, when reasonable numbers of stillwater fisheries were still stocking them, they were quite hard to come by, often disappearing into the depths of a lake the moment they went in, never to be seen again. I thought that uh, the brook trout was, it was going to be a particular challenge in, in achieving a Grand Slam. I actually got mine from Bank House. I do remember it mainly for the colour because they are a, a stunning fish and they've got the gleaming white trailing edges on their, um, the fins. Again, I was fishing for rainbows, being absolutely honest. Brook trout comes along, chomp, 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 here we go. And that, I thought, hmm, that's one under now. I might well be on my way with this. There may well be places now, I mean, you know, it's quite a time since that uh, they've actually um, stocked them more. I know Twin Lakes at Croston, I think they used to stock them, didn't they, with uh, Graham? Yeah, that's where I got mine. But yeah, that would be quite a challenge, I think, to, uh, to success. I agree. Even in the few lakes where they still put them in, if you can find them, they're never going to be that easy of a fish to target and catch. They seem to go deep and sulk. I suppose if you bought fishing you might be in with a better shout. Have you got any shortcut ideas? Not really. I, I think you get these commercial fisheries that put something in just for its novelty value. You get blues, don't you, rainbows and stuff. There's a, there's a place out sort of Southport way that, that stocks with uh, salmon, which is not the done thing, is it really, old chap? Yeah, brook trout might well have the novelty value. Tiger trout, I think uh, Frank Casson's put some of those in sometimes. But as you say, on a commercial venture, they're not economic in a sense. Uh, but that perhaps just enhances the, um, the challenge, doesn't it? Let's press on now into potentially even more controversial territory. Time to look at the grayling. One of the arguments against including the grayling here is the fact that in some circles it's considered as a coarse fish species. I don't agree with that argument at all. How on earth can you say that grayling's not a game fish? It's one of the most beautiful fish. A really, really good fish to catch. It's an indicator of the quality of the water you're fishing in. It's got an adipose fin, so how on earth can you argue that it's uh, it's not a game fish? Our sort of um, meeting, if you recall, was all about grayling, because one of the uh, lads at my wife's swimming club knew of my interest, and he, he somehow knew you. He put me in touch with you, and we met, I think, down in the Herrick one evening, and that's how we sort of got talking to. So grayling has, has got a particular affinity with me and it's just a, a beautiful fish to catch. Again, very varied methods. You can fly fish for it, you can bait fish for it, you can fish for it early season, you can fish for it in the depths of winter. On the upper reaches probably, I would say, because they need the quality of water. It's just a, a beautiful fish, really. Like you, I've had quite a few over the years from a wide range of typical North Country locations. 
but far and away, my most interesting encounter was last year, fishing the Upper Avon in Wiltshire with Graham Pullen. You have literally to wait for members to die to get even a sniff of this very exclusive and expensive syndicate stretch of the Avon, and all of it is fly fishing only. That said, and for one day only, Graham and I were given the run of the place with permission to fish with maggots to produce a course fishing video. And what an experience. We even got to fish Sawyer's Bend, where the legendary Frank Sawyer perfected his famous upstream nymphing technique. Dace, trout and plenty of grayling made it a real day to remember. I'm not quite sure that maggots and game fish uh, sit well together in my mind. I'm not to say that I've not caught an occasional uh, grayling on maggot. And of course it's legal, so when you're under pressure, then this little term, you know, when needs must, the devil drives comes in. But uh, I think Skews would have something to say on it, probably turning in his grave or probably whack you on the head with his priest if he saw you maggoting on his hallowed ground. Time now to look at what most people would see as the main stumbling blocks, the char and the whitefish. The whitefish, yes, but with char in well over 100 locks and lakes throughout northern England and Scotland, they should be much less of a challenge. We caught all of our char in Coniston, but I'm reliably informed that crummock water is now a far easier bet. I actually caught my first char back in the early 70s on bait fishing from the shore. They can be easy fish to catch on bait if you know exactly where to look. The problem was that these spots were spawning areas, fished in the days before the season was moved to the 1st of May as an added layer of protection for these char. We obviously hadn't realised that at the time, and as such, the season change was perfectly justified. No, we've had one or two bank sessions, but I remember looking forward avidly to the 1st of May on a number of, uh, of years because that was the time on Coniston where you could take them. And I've got lots of recollections and, uh, and so on. Just a, a few buzzwords to throw out. The, the colouration of these fish is absolutely stunning. If you get a, a male fish not far after the, they've been spawning, the, the orange colour underneath and the white trailing fins is absolutely fantastic. Not a fish of um, any great size. and it, It's not, might not be that difficult to catch, but it's not like as heart-stopping as a, a sea trout or a salmon and so on. But... Um, when we used to go to Coniston, I've got some uh, some quite uh, good recollections. One of which I've, I thought was uh, was disturbing reflections, and that's nothing other than when we used to go out early in the morning, sometimes first on the lake, and it, it was on a really nice flat, calm day, and we went right across the lake and split the reflections in two. And I thought you spoilt that for so many people. How selfish! But in terms of actually catching them. Not difficult at all if you're in, again, how many times have we said it? Right time, right place. And perhaps if you're saying, how could you guarantee a char, then I reckon if you're not lucky enough to have access to your own boat, then there are guys out there that will take you out fishing with the traditional methods, the big 15-foot outriggers and the, the weights and stuff like that and, and so on. Not to say they haven't blanked. I've blanked with Trevor once or twice. He usually blames it on the uh, the water coming down, the cold water coming down Coniston into the, the river and so on. But there were lots of fish on this particular instance showing on the sounder at all depths. But uh, we just couldn't contact them at all. I had a day out charring with you and Trevor Walker, trolling with two plumb lines in the traditional manner. That's what he used to use, yeah. It was, and he used to make his own spinners. Um, some of them were gold and silver, extremely highly polished. And his system was to have 
was it about six or perhaps even eight spinners on a downrigger and they were all laid out in a very specific way and it worked how on earth it didn't tangle I have absolutely no idea whatsoever but it worked but the last time I went out with him he gave me a choice he said do you want to go traditional or do you want to go glass fibre and he'd used these um, telescopic poles these glass fibre poles or they might even have been carbon and I, I, <laughs> the thing I remember about them is they didn't particularly work that well but the old ones were these really really big bamboo canes with a great big brass bell tinkling away on the end uh, that's that's what I remember about it and just taking the pleasure of uh, rowing up the lake and just taking it all in to some extent what we did was an angling adaptation of what you just described but using a rod, reel and single lure which we waited to achieve the required working depth at the start we trolled these lures on the oars but later learned it was just as effective and a whole lot easier to use a small outboard motor on tick over most of the fish we saw on the echo sound were between 20 and 40 feet down over 60 feet of water and by trial and error we soon worked out that one ounce of lead on a slow troll would take a lure down to around 15 feet. So obviously two ounces of lead would be 30 feet with all manner of fine tuning in between and we certainly caught plenty of char. Yeah yeah I think it wasn't uh, uncommon to have a dozen or more fish was it really? But I, I remember when we were going past like Tover Common we got to this particular bay and we used to turn the boat round and then go back down the shore and inevitably when the boat was turning we'd pick a fish up now whether it rose in the, or whether it speeded up or whatever I, I really can't remember but I do remember fishing that bay turning the boat and catching fairly well consistently at that spot that actually fits in with something I read in one of Bob Church's old Rutland Trouting articles on fly fishing from a boat on the drift, and how, when it came to the curve in the line straightening out, he always seemed to get more takes. In some ways, perhaps, a comparable situation. It wasn't, as I say, I, I do remember that. I mean, remember picking one or two off the, um, the bank. Somebody had put you onto this spot, and you had to find this exact ghost bush that uh, you fished away from. Uh, if you had any success and, and we, we have had some off the bank but uh, the, most of them were on the boat I remember in the early days that we did see people was it at Brantwood that really deep spot where they used to perhaps spawn and again these people were from the northwest. I wouldn't like to say Lancashire although it's probably in the county Palatine off but they were hammering fish out on, on maggots we could see them what disappointed me that particular day was the bailiffs came out to check what we were fishing with, check we got licences and so on. They went to their boat and the, the rods were banging over, the fish on, but they, they didn't seem to pick them up on it. And all they were doing was just knocking fish out, as many as they could, and then selling them to the hotels at, like, you know, what was in those days, 50p, 75p, which was quite, you know, quite a nice amount really, especially if you were checking 80 or 100 fish. I think that perhaps might have been one of the uh, the reasons they brought the bait ban in, quite rightly in a sense. With I hate exploitation and uh, and greed like that. It's it's no place in fishing at all. You tied up some gaudy lures for me based on the spinners we used. The first pattern had a silver stranded hackle laid over a red body, which we call the Char Lady. Can you remember that? I can remember that indeed. Yes, and we did call it a Char Lady, which we thought was rather amusing. But anyway. But I think we based it on some uh, Inuit patterns. No, that came later. 
and one of the materials, I'm not sure I can perhaps uh, mention it and if it's not appropriate to, or if it's going to lead to somebody getting into uh, trouble, uh, you certainly won't find it in Carter's or anywhere like that, but it was polar bear on black skin, which, you know, for whatever reason, but a, a beautiful sparkle to it. And we did indeed catch, I think we were sort of lead core lining and chucking bellies out to get some depth. But we did, you did, I didn't, um, and neither did James actually, to be honest. Uh, but we did legitimately catch char on fly, home tied flies, yeah. But for the most part it was spinners, with varying amounts of leads in the form of drilled bullets stopped by a swivel, probably a few feet ahead of a variety of patterns from Torby's through Meps to my favourite, a very light, fluttering genspin. And on the day, all probably caught fish, though silver and red were most definitely the most popular colours, with 10 to 20 fish a day being typical, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that, that was. I can remember more blank days than I particularly want to, but um, the one that I really remember was that one out with Trevor Walker, and uh, we only stuck it out till lunchtime. We'd both had enough. It was pretty bobbly out there. It, it was raining, it was cold. The fish frustratingly were on the sounder, but we just couldn't tempt any at all. We never had even a tinkle on the bell. Both of us decided that enough was enough at lunchtime. That's the only time I can really remember blanking. It was during our charring days that we first started to think about whitefish. In particular, about climbing up to Red Tarn at the foot of Striding Edge on Helvellyn for a crack at catching a skelly. But my introduction to the species came a long time before that. It might be helpful here to give a brief overview of what the whitefishes are. Supposedly they thrived in Loch Hibernia, which was a brackish lake in the middle of what is now the Irish Sea during the last ice age, when sea levels were very much lower than they are today. Then, as the ice melted and the sea broke through the Kintyre to Island land bridge flooding the Irish Sea Basin, these fish were pushed up the rivers into the lakes surrounding today's Irish Sea, which supposedly explains the locations they're currently found in today. Leastways, that's the accepted wisdom. There are, however, scientists who think things might have happened differently. Despite the many different names given to them, throughout the British Isles there are just two species, Corrigonus lavaratus, which is the English skelly, Welsh guineard and Scottish poan, and Corrigonus albula, which is the English and Scottish vendace, plus the Irish pollen. Skellies, guineard and pollen can all be caught on rod and line. As planktonic feeders, vendace and pollen supposedly can't be, Though when I was interviewing Cumbrian angling guide Eric Hope a few weeks ago, he told me of a vendace he'd taken on a fly whilst fishing with a client in Bassenthwaite. Gwynyard live in Lake Balla. Poen are found in Loch Lomond and Loch Eck, with skellies confined to Woolswater, Horswater and Red Tarn. However, since 1992, Brotherswater, which connects to Woolswater via Goldrill Beck, is also now listed as containing them. I'm not sure if you were with me at the time, but I once saw a dead skelly floating in Brother's Water and reported the fact at the time. Now, years later, scientists are claiming to have suddenly discovered them there, citing Goldrill Beck as the entry route, a small stream which we did on occasion fish. At the other end of Ull's Water, coarse anglers fishing winter matches on the River Eden, which exits the lake at Pooley Bridge, also pick up the odd one. And for completeness, Vendace or Pollen are found in Islands Loch Nay, Urn, Derg and Ree, Scotland's Loch Maben and Cumbria's Bassenthwaite. Getting back to the fishing now, I used to work with a couple of likeable rogues who regularly fished Ull's water for trout, where they'd bend the rules by laying down a carpet of ground bait and maggots, then fish maggot baits over it at a time of the season when this was prohibited. 
and as a result they pick up the odd skelly, particularly in Shara Bay. Hearing this, I decided to tag along with them. I, on the other hand, always fished the worm, which is maybe as well, as the bailiffs came along one morning and the next thing the pair were up in front of Carlisle Magistrates, and I got my first ever skelly there on the worm. They stopped going after that, but I continued, fishing round the other side of the lake where I met up with a chap called Wally Wainwright from St Helens. He was a member of a course fishing club which came up by coach to fish legitimately for trout on course tactics during the close season and who also picked up a few skellies. In fact, he had a specimen of £1.10 ounces while I was with him, which was accepted as both a British and world record. It could even have been Wally who told me about Red Tarn, because shortly after that, you and I decided to hike up Elvelin with the fishing gear to give it a go with the maggots and ground bait, looking for trout and skellies, which was perfectly legal at that time, though I have to say it isn't now. Well, again, you, you can't guarantee um, you know, what you're going to catch. You chuck it in and you sometimes pull some out you're not expecting to. I don't think you could be uh, taken to task for that's not your fault. But if the fish are there, then there's always a chance of, uh, of catching, isn't there, I suppose? But surely the question now is that with the skelly protected under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, should it still be included in any further Salmonic Grand Slam? Mm, that's a pretty fair question, actually. If it's protected under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, then should you be targeting it? How many steps do you want to take to this Grand Slam? I mean, I'm all right, I've got mine. Nobody can take that away from me. But I think you're making it pretty difficult, if not impossible, if you start to do that. I reckon you've hit it on the head with that. I could go with that. Yeah, I'm quite happy with that. And if we do leave it in, are we not then duty-bound to also include the Vendes, which when you did your slam had not been caught on rod and line, but may not be as much of an angling impossibility as everyone makes it out to be? No, I'm sometimes a bit too black and white me, but uh, yeah, that, that would be a good one to stand. If, if you set your stall out and say that's what you're going to do, and that's what you achieve, then that's what you've achieved. To some degree it's academic. The Salmonic Grand Slam that we took on, and which you completed, is no longer legally available, which on the one hand makes any attempts by others in the future that much easier, while at the same time upping the value and credibility of what you did, which included the skelly. Realistically speaking then, all you can do now is look at the British record fish list and go for all the adipose species it contains, which no longer includes a skelly because it's been removed. That way there are no grey areas. Anyway, let's get back to Red Tarn, which is something we did on a number of occasions, and rarely without at least one of us catching a skelly, and even more rarely with two in the same visit. You did it once, but as far as I can recall, that was the only time. Yes, Red Tarn, it's, uh, I mean, we did have a good number of goals up there. It's uh, arduous but uh, incredible when you get to, to such a, a real wilderness. But the red letter day, for want of a better phrase on that, that I've locked away in my mental uh, treasure chest, was the day we set out, we'd got ourselves packed up with all the camera gear and some fishing stuff and some bait and, and so, some legal bait that we were using because it's legal to use housefly larvae, shall we say. And we hadn't been climbing too much when this, this guy's coming towards us and I thought, well, I recognise him. And um, he was obviously eyeing us up, so to speak. And it was he that opened the conversation and uh, he was saying, I, I can't do his accent, but I, I remember him saying, uh, you know, so, morning boys, where are you off to and, uh, and what for? And I said, oh, we're, we're up to the top light, you know, we're fishing for, uh, for Brown and, uh, and Skelly. I said, why, why don't you come up with us? Come on, turn around and come up with us. 
and he said bloody knees he said pack it in he said I've had to leave my party up there to come down it, it was just one of those complete chance encounters that I'll, I'll not forget but what I do remember is a tinge of regret in that we'd got all this equipment with us video equipment cameras and we never got a single frame of him but we can't turn back the clock and, and so on it's there it's locked in my little uh, pictures but um I remember Sir Michael Horden uh, with great fondness. He did a television series based on uh, Arthur Ransom's book, which was uh, called Rod and Line. And uh, in that book, there's a couple of chapters. Uh, one is, I think it's something on fishing in Lilliput. And that was about fishing for tiny little wild brown trout in the smallest streams and becks you can think of. But the other one, which uh, makes me laugh a bit, is on talking to fish, is the chapter. And this was part of the series where he was uh, on one of the salmon rivers he was walking the bank somebody had caught a salmon and this uh, this fisherman in uh, you know quite a good accent is is talking to this fish and saying no don't you roll up there come back here and this that and the other and I think I've adopted that a bit but mine again sort of tends to sort of go into Anglo-Saxon and it's like threatening the fish not to come off the hook and uh, you know I'll give you what for if I get in this that and the other but yeah a lovely man I wish we'd have got a, a picture of him but um, that was the day that I, I, I got the skelly up there I think I got two that day so that made it so memorable I think well if you've got one or two fish under your belt and you've got that one you think I mean we have a pretty fair chance now a pretty fair chance yeah there he was, an international film star, and he was envious of us. It just goes to show you that fame and money isn't everything. Uh, absolutely indeed, now this size. You can get opportunities if you, if, if you know the right people, but then again, you can make your own opportunities. And we did ours then. And I'm sure, actually, if it had been in full fettle, he would have turned around and come with us just for the crack. I'm sure we could have convinced him about that. Just for saying, we were going up 2,400 feet to catch these legendary fish. But the scenery itself is worth the trip, with whatever fish that come along being little more than a bonus. It is. It's real wilderness country. It's a, an arduous climb up, and the deepest part of the town, as far as I can uh, work out, is, is on the, um, the side which uh, butts up to uh, Striding Edge. But the word that I remember from that particular day when we were going up, which was, a, I think it was a really nice day, actually, when we got up there... Uh, it wasn't blowing a hoolie or anything like that. It was really quite fishable. But after you'd gone over and dropped down into the bowl of the uh, where the tarn is, as we were going across towards the tarn, we were obviously walking over peat, and it was really quite spongy. And the word that came to my mind was yomping, and that was a phrase I'd first heard. It was actually uh, when the, um, the, the, the troops were in um, the Falklands, and they went on these exercises... And it's a particular gate. It's, it's not unlike a, a bit of a moonwalk. I, I was watching some historical um, stuff from the moon landings uh, last week and they had this gate where they were rolling from one side to another. And I particularly remember going across this at a decent, a decent pace and feeling very comfortable because when you put your foot down, it was cushioned. But yeah, potentially, I would think in the wrong, um, the wrong times, you've got to be careful when you set off. On a, on a trip like that that you know what the weather is going to be because when you're travelling up it can change quite quickly and if, if you get cut off there with mists coming in then I would think it's a, a pretty uh, formidable place it's certainly not worth the risk of achieving 
any element in a, any form of competition. I've been up there when it's been a snowfield and caught fish, and on other occasions when we couldn't fish at all because it was frozen over. But typically, the weather would be overcast with wind and showers, which when your back is wet with sweat underneath your rucksack, leaves you feeling very cold and miserable until it dries. And always we caught trout, some of which, in spite of the nutrient-poor status of the tarn and sparseness of invertebrate life, have been good-sized and beautiful-looking wild fish. Atypical wild brown trout, weren't they? And you do wonder, think, well, how are they surviving? They were never, I don't remember being that big, perhaps three-quarters of a pound, you know, you know 10, 12-inch, something like that would have been a really nice fish. I remember quite a, f- a few small fish. But if they're there, they're feeding on something, they're not feeding on fresh air. And it was unusual not to see a skelly at all. So there must have been quite a few in the place, plus plenty of suitable food, as these were often bigger than the trout. Uh, well, there must be, if you, if you think of the, uh, the odds of actually catching one in, in somewhere like that, but... I can't remember other instances where I've caught them. I can only remember that particular one day when I had those two. And again, I remember usual sort of bite, bringing it in, not thinking it was anything other than a brown trout. And then when it hit the surface, I thought, oh my goodness, it's a skelly. That's when the nerves kicked in. That's when the pressure was on. Got to catch this for video. For goodness sake, or words to that effect, don't come off get that video camera running and let's catch it on film and, and let's actually land it. And of course we did do thankfully and uh, we'd, we got some footage of it and, and obviously released it back uh, from whence it came. But to, to me, that was the, the instance when the pressure was off and the Grand Slam was on. So in terms of the Salmonic Grand Slam, I didn't actually complete it. As I mentioned earlier, I certainly missed out on the sea trout and I think I may have also missed out on one of the other species too. But for a mere sea angler, I don't think I fared too badly. You, on the other hand, completed the whole thing, by all accounts becoming the first, possibly the only, and more likely than not the last person ever to do so, certainly with the species list we were working from. Sum up for us then how that feels. It doesn't particularly matter to me whether it was the first or not. Um, you know, I have no ambitions to be a, a Neil Armstrong, but certainly to do something that which we specifically set out to do in a time-limited period and fish for some really quite difficult species. But to get it, I, I really felt you know, quite a sense of achievement and pride. I've done it. I know I've done it. You know I've done it. We've got proof that I've done it. Nobody can take it away from me. Thank you very much. And thank you for sharing your recollections of doing it with us here.